Hello, everybody. This is Queer Voices, a home-produced podcast that has grown out of a radio show that's been on the air in Houston, Texas for several decades. This week, Brian Levinka talks with Dr. Philip Schnars of UT Austin about several things, including the long-term effects of growing up in an LGBTQ repressive environment. When you're exposed to these types of adversity as a young person and you don't necessarily have the skills to cope with these things, it alters uh, our brain development in ways that then increase some types of problems such as impulsivity or other types of risk factors that then lead to things like depression or anxiety in adulthood or other mental health issues. Deborah Moncrief-Bell has a conversation with former KPFT station manager Mary Ellen Mertzbacher about the station's history and the loss of the old broadcast building. That building is not the radio station. KPFT is about a spirit of information and truth and ideas and free thought and being able to, you know, have everybody, even communities that aren't in the majority. And Brian talks with Leatherman from the Houston NLA chapter about their organization. A lot of people's misconception about the leather community starts in some very dark places such as satanic worship and just all crazy things that I don't even want to name, but that is not true. We also have news wrap from This Way Out and music by queer artists. Queer Voices starts now. This is Brian Levink, and today we're talking with Philip Schnars, PhD from Austin, Texas. Welcome, Philip, to Queer Voices. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. So how do we know each other, Philip? I think you and I met. Uh, we were both uh, members of Texas Pride Impact Fund. I was very struck by how active you are and how academically engaged you are in, te- in UT and Austin. So can you talk about some of your research and what you do in Austin? I am broadly an LGBTQ health researcher. Um, I focus primarily on HIV prevention and testing, but also I do a lot of work in the space of LGBTQ plus mental health, um, specifically considering how exposure to um, adversity during childhood has lasting impacts on the mental health outcomes of uh, LGBTQ plus adults. So can you talk about the uh, current state of healthcare for trans Texans and maybe the impact that that might have on them in the future? I think one of the things that's currently happening right now with the governor's sort of language around and, and wanting the Department of um, Family Services to investigate trans youth and their families who are engaged in gender-affirming care as child abuse is, you know, I think really problematic in a number of ways. I mean, one, you know, it reduces access to health care for these young people who are in desperate need of it. But two, these types of sort of um, policies that single out trans or LGBTQ uh, young people um, as problematic has a huge impact, not only on their sort of mental well-being during childhood or or as young people, but it has long-lasting impacts on the mental health as they get into adulthood as well. We recently published a paper in the Journal of Child Abuse and Neglect that kind of conceptualizes uh, heterosexism, which is the preferencing or the valuing of male-female sexual partnerships and romantic relationships. So basically, it, heterosexism 
values heterosexuality over other forms of sexual expression, as well as different forms of gender expression as well, to the detriment of LGBTQ plus people. And so we developed a measure that looks at these different types of exposure to heterosexism before the age of 18, which include things like seeing or hearing of uh, other LGBTQ individuals being um, physically harmed or hearing transphobic or homophobic things in religious contexts. And what we found was that individuals who are exposed to these types of experiences as young people, that it increases risk for depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder in adulthood after we control for other factors, like different types of exposure to trauma. So like uh, just general abuse or neglect, as well as demographic factors. And what that tells us is that individuals who are in environments like Texas, it, it increases our risk for poor mental health as adults. And there's a whole literature behind this about what's called an ACEs framework or adverse childhood experiences framework, which suggests that when you're exposed to these types of adversity as a young person and you don't necessarily have the skills to cope with these things, it alters uh, our brain development in ways that then increase some types of problems such as impulsivity or other types of risk factors that then lead to things like depression or anxiety in adulthood or other mental health issues. You are also the director of the Pride Health Lab. Can you talk about that and what you do there? The Pride Health Lab stands for um, People-Centered Research, Intervention, Design, and Evaluation in Health. And we are a statewide consortium of a number of academic institutions and researchers across the state who are really focused on trying to improve the overall health and well-being of LGBTQ Texans through co-developed research projects with community partners and individuals with lived experience. It's still very new, and we're still trying to build our networks across the state. Each month, we offer the LGBTQ Health Seminar Series, which brings together researchers, clinicians, and community members where folks can provide talks about what they're working on, so their research projects or innovative clinical practices or programs that are running in the community. And we also provide a space for researchers to come together to get feedback on projects and to engage with community partners on different types of projects or seek collaboration for those projects with other researchers or community partners. You're also involved with the op-ed project. What is that? So the op-ed project is it's a national initiative to help academics and other people, uh, especially women and folks from um, minoritized groups, to uh, help them, you know, learn how to write opinion pieces and get those opinion pieces published in, in spaces where we're often excluded from the conversation about what's going on in the world. So it's really an activity about increasing the stories and the voices of those who haven't been part of the conversation about, you know, things going on in society or political things or, you know, just experiences of folks who, whose stories don't often get told. We're speaking with Philip Schnars, PhD, an associate professor at UT Dell Medical School. You had an article in Visible Magazine about this book, burn, book banning thing from Representative Krauss out of Fort Worth. Can you talk about that? There's been this focus on getting rid of books in schools that would make individuals uncomfortable. And I I don't, when you look at the titles that are are being restricted, there's titles about sexual health 
you know, about giving young people knowledge about how to prevent HIV or how to prevent unintended pregnancies, right? And so it, it just doesn't make sense to me to ban books that provide education to folks that has a direct impact on their lives. And who decides what makes people uncomfortable? I mean, you go down that rabbit hole. I, I mean, yeah, exactly. Like, is that, it, it, it's one of those cases, um, it's not the real cause, right? And so it, I think it's a, it's a lot more insidious when we start talking about banning books than just whether or not someone is comfortable with the information. It's, it's, it's more about control and, and pushing one's ideas about how the world should work rather than providing information to people that's really going to improve their lives and keep them safe. Can you tell us why you're so involved with all of this activism and research? What drives you to do all this? That's a great question. <laughs> you know, I, I, I attribute a lot of it to just, I grew up as a gay man in a place and a time that I think um, was just, you know, difficult for me. And I often felt like I was the person on the outside. I grew up in uh, Western Pennsylvania oh. in a very conservative Christian household and I have no problems with people who identify with Christianity or Christians themselves. It's just that my experience and growing up in that sort of space had a huge impact on my mental health growing up and led to a few suicide attempts myself when I was really? a younger person. And, you know, I engage in this work because I don't want other young people or LGBTQ people in general to, to have to struggle like that. It's a hard thing to, to handle, I think, when you're a young person and you don't feel like you have anybody that you can reach out to or connect with to help you understand what's going on with you, what's going on around you. And if there's any way to reduce that, that's something I want to be a part of. You know, I think, too, I grew up with a great grandmother who, you know, always sort of saw the best in people and was never judgmental or never demeaning or, or treated anybody differently. Um, and that was kind of instilled in me. It was just that there's something human, I think, in everybody. And understanding that, I think, is part of why I do the work that I do is, you know, seeing people struggle is something that we should all be trying to address issues like what's happening with trans youth and their families in the state right now, because no one should have to struggle like that. No one should have to suffer because someone doesn't agree with your life. Well, it's very obvious that you're passionate about this activism in your work. Can you talk about the Texas Pride Impact Funds that we're both on the board of? Texas Pride Impact Funds is a great organization to be a part of. The only statewide charitable foundation for LGBTQ causes here. And we have an annual grant cycle where we give out funds to primarily grassroots organizations that are BIPOC-led, that are trans and gender diverse-led, or you know have an impact on communities that are pretty vulnerable across the state. And so we uh, try to support these organizations in terms of growing in the hope that we'll be able to reach more LGBTQ people across the state and have an impact on their lives in a number of ways. And I have to disclose that we're both on the board of this organization, so it's kind of in our interest to promote this. So in the last few minutes, Philip, can you tell people where they can find out more information about you and all your work? Yeah, we have a website. If you Google Texas Pride Health Collaborative, you'll be able to find us. You can also find me uh, on Dell Medical School's website. You can look for me there. And is there anything else you want our listeners to know about you? 
one of the things that we're working towards as a group through the collaborative and through the Pride Health Lab specifically is trying to build a better Texas for LGBTQ individuals, especially as it relates to their health and well-being. And if you're interested in being a part of that, please reach out to us and let us know how you want to be involved. And we could always use individuals who are interested in, you know, donating funds to help support the research or the researchers that we engage in to improve the health and well-being of LGBTQ Texans. That's all I have to say. And thanks, Brian, so much for the opportunity to come on and talk with you today. We've been speaking to Philip Schnars, PhD, an awesome associate professor at UT who's doing amazing work for LGBTQ Texans. So thank you, Philip, for coming on. Thanks, Brian. I really appreciate it. This is Queer Voices. Amazon Women Rise. Amazon Women Weaving Rainbows in the Sky. Amazon Women Live. Amazon Women.
This is Glenn from Queer Voices. Have you ever thought about getting into podcasting? Maybe you're already active in the LGBTQ community and you'd like to make your voice heard. We at Queer Voices are actively looking for volunteers to find and interview community members for this podcast. You don't need any radio experience, just a desire to make a difference. Or maybe you have something to say. Maybe you want to speak editorially? Whatever your skills and connections, we need more help putting this show together every week. Just contact show host Brian Lavinka through our QueerVoices.org website and say you want to get involved. Hopefully our listeners will soon be hearing your voice on Queer Voices. That's Queer Voices, the worldwide podcast, and Queer Voices, the radio show, Fridays at noon on KPFT, Houston. Hi, this is Deborah Moncrief-Bell, and today I'm talking with former general manager of KPFT, Mary Helen Mersbacher. Hey, Mary Helen, how are you doing? Hi, Deborah, I'm well, thank you. What years were you the general manager at KPFT? Well, I, I actually started out there as what, what they called in those days as subscriptions director. It's like a it, it's like the membership manager. You know, I ran the database for a while. And in 1988, I believe, when Gene Palmquist left, I became the general manager. And I was there about four years, I guess, something like that. And I stayed, you know, after I, I left my position as general manager, I went back to being a volunteer again. How did you first get involved with KPFT? By becoming a volunteer, going down during marathons and answering phones and just getting to know people. Now, Mary Helen and I have known each other and worked together on a number of projects over the years, but you're probably the person who introduced me to Breakthrough on KPFT. Because I had been a listener for a long time, but it wasn't until the early 80s that I knew that there was a women's music program. You didn't know all those lesbians were partying down on Friday morning, did you? That's right. And then it became like an integral part of my life. Like okay. I, what my work schedule or whatever, I had to have it so I could listen to Breakthrough. That was more fun than anything. And a kind of interesting story about that is... Um, I know you know our, our former mayor, Anise Parker, and, and her uh, wife, Kathy Hubbard. Well, that's, that's where they met, is answering phones at KPFT. I didn't realize that. Yeah, that, okay. is, that is a true story, because I was there. and, and um, <laughs> <laughs> You were there and saw it happen. Well, yeah. isn't that wonderful? KPFT has brought a lot of people together over the years. And, of course, one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you is because the actual studio that was the home to KPFT at 419 Lovett Boulevard is about to be demolished. I know that uh, brings up a lot of memories for us. We have nostalgia. We, we're kind of mourning the loss of that building and kind of wondering what the future holds because, of course, the pandemic forced us all to readjust. And then instead of going to a studio and doing a radio program, we now are doing it by Zoom. So what are some of the things that you observed over the years about KPFT? What are some of your fondest memories? It's hard to imagine the station without a physical building. You know, that building up you know, brought a community together and, you know, people 
met that on common ground that they they might remain isolated in their own individual groups, you know, be those ethnic groups or uh, sexual orientation type, you know, whatever groups they're in, you know, the, KPFT was a, a way to break those barriers down a little bit between groups of people, you know, the, the Indians and the Pakistanis, the British and the Irish, the, uh, you know, just just all the different um, groups that were that were sometimes the Arabs and the Jews. You know that there was just so many different angles that people could were coming from, and but they all came to support that station. So I hope it'll be able to maintain some of that going on. Um, some of that, some, that sense of community. Yeah, because I, you know, it's hard without a physical location. You don't quite get the same vibration as you do. Uh, you know, meeting someone and, and getting to know them on a personal level. I mean, we had we had an atheist program at the time, and you know, deeply um, religious people uh, would would also be able to engage with with people that were atheist. And you know, that is just a chance for people to um, break out of their little polarized shell. I suppose that's one thing that I, I think we'll miss. I don't really know exactly where they're going. I know how hard it is to keep any nonprofit afloat. It was always hard to, always a challenge to keep KPFT in the black. I mean, just always a challenge. We're in Houston and we've got a a conservative area of the country to be in to have a Pacifica station. Very blessed, that's for sure. Yes. Well, in a lot of ways, KPFT is the little engine that could. This wild idea to have radio and have people support it without there being commercials or corporate sponsorship. And, of course, our beloved Ray Hill was one of the people that helped start KPFT and at one time was manager. Over the years, there's been a wide diversity of broadcasting. I, I remember I would listen to Musical Trot with Lisa Vaughn. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes there would be programs that'd be in Spanish. I didn't, I didn't know the language, but I loved the music. And it certainly fostered understanding of various cultures, just as you alluded to. And it also has provided a platform for music that might not otherwise be heard but my gosh the blues programs the deadbeat playing the music of the grateful dead what are some of the other programs that you have enjoyed over the well, years? when i was there we did we had you know the cajun music and, and oh the, yeah Zodico. we had we had uh, bluegrass and we had a couple blues programs and folk and acoustic based music and political music things that you know, we're a little more political in the day, you know, people that, that could say things that, um, you know, that, that didn't, music that didn't get commercial airplay for the most part. And, and of course, a lot of that did have to do with women, okay? You know, there just has always been a lack of women in, in music and in radio. There, you don't hear women's voices. And uh, so a lot of that, you know, the things that we played, you know, like the, like the Breakthrough Program on Friday morning. That was music that wasn't going to get airplay at any other radio station. They, you know, it's not deemed commercially viable, I suppose. And so a lot, a lot of that had to do with, um, you know, just trying to serve underserved communities and, and women being one of them. And a lot of people that came up in the music industry in Houston got their start by KPFT. Oh, yeah. The famous I mean, like Lyle Lovett and Nancy yeah. Griffith and a lot, a lot of folks. Uh, what are some of the memorable people you remember being there? 
Well, of course, we lost Nancy last year. You know, last August she died. Um, and, you know, a lot of other people um, that have gone on that, that were at KPFT. And uh, so there's a lot of, lot of old memories there for me, too. Um, you know, I think about people like Thelma Meltzer back in when, um, when I first got involved at the station. She was very involved. And she was a stalwart also at the First Unitarian Church downtown. And um, she was uh, just an amazing person that I got to know, Margie Glazer that I got to know. And these were just ordinary people. But um, I remember getting my picture taken by Annie Leibowitz, who came into the studio for an interview one time. Oh, my gosh. Um, Yeah. You have Uh, a copy of that? You know, I don't think I do, but um, I might. I think it was in one of the old newsletters somewhere. Oh, my Um, gosh. I'd love to see that. Cesar Chavez came to the station one day. Um, and I remember this, him getting his picture taken out back by the satellite dish in the backyard. We were taking pictures with Cesar Chavez. Uh, and uh, Dolores Del- Huerta was with him that day. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty. I mean, just there's just so many people that um, Bill Monroe, you know, that were the father of bluegrass. Just, you know, so many people that came through there that, you know, were special, talented people. Some even still alive. <laughs> I remember you uh, telling me there had been a visit one time, I think, by the white Persian cat that did the Fancy Feast commercial. (laughs) The grouchy cat, was it? No, I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember Uh, that one. But it's that beautiful white Persian that they had on the commercial. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't remember For some reason, it was there at the radio station. I don't know why. (laughs) It's not like they could interview the cat. I'll never forget one day, I mean, this is kind of off the subject of famous people, but I remember we got this cigar box with the, it was like had a, some kind of egg timer in it and a couple of tubes, like cigar tubes. And, that you know, it was all taped together like it was a suspicious package, you know, it was supposed to be a bomb. And uh, of course, it, it was fake and uh, never, never was really any danger to anybody, but uh, it's just some of the strange stuff that went on over the years, <laughs> you know, just. Well, you might recount the story of when not the station, but the transmitter was actually bombed. Yeah, it was. And, um, and I wasn't there. That was before my time. But, uh, what, but what did occur during my time there was, uh, was actually Jean uh, went through, and this, I hope I'm accurate in my remembrance, she went through the Freedom of Information Act to get all the information about what actually happened in that bombing. And they said it was an FBI involvement with the KKK that spurred that bomb into taking place. And they, they did it two times. Anyway, it was supposed to be some kind of FBI informant or, you know, person. I, I don't remember all the details, but <clears throat> it's been many years. Maybe Jean might remember. You have to interview her next. Yeah, that's Jean Palmquist. Well, my favorite part of that story is when, at least during one of the bombings, that the song that was playing at the time was Arlo Guthrie's Alice's Restaurant. What happened was when the station got back on the air, he was there live in the studio and took up the song at the point where it had been interrupted. Well, the place is definitely, you know, has seen some amazing talent and gifted people come through there. 
you know, volunteers, guests, yourself, you know, folks like like Ray Hill, Jack Valinsky, Mike Meesh. I think the first time I ever heard a, a program aimed at a gay audience was Wildenstein. And that was, um, boy, was that, that groundbreaking. Yeah, and then that morphed into gay and lesbian voices, which morphed into queer voices, which is the name we use today. And you mentioned Mike Meesh, whose ashes were scattered in the backyard there. And Mike was one of my early mentors. He and Claire Kern, she had, I can't remember, it was Woman's Place, I think it was called. Yeah, yeah. Went on her program a few times. And essentially, like you, it was volunteering, answering phones and doing whatever for some of the programs that I enjoyed. I'm not really quite sure. I don't remember exactly how you and I met, but I just know that we were involved in a lot of the same things. It may have been at the women's group at the First Unitarian Church, and then we both were involved in the National Organization for Women, and then we were both involved with KPFT. Kind of how it went. I don't know which came first, but... uh. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the, the, the chicken and egg kind of thing. But, of course, you are one of my dearest and most valued friendships low these many years. Likewise. Uh, And it's really a joy to talk to you, Mary Helen Merzbacher, about your legacy at KPFT as general manager. We're talking with Mary Helen here on Queer Voices, and she was certainly a big part of my history there at the station. What are some of your feelings about the end of the building? I mean, it's the end of an era in a way. Well, I suppose it's inevitable. I mean, you look at the mansion that was next door, the Alliance of Women's Clubs, that was a well, much better maintained than 419 Levitt, I'll tell you. And they've they've torn that down and built, you know, multi-million dollar townhomes. And you kind of see the handwriting on the wall there, you know, that the building Even in the days when I was there, the 80s and 90s, it was already so overburdened by having to try to function as a radio station. And I don't know what improvements. I'm sure they've done, did a lot since I was there. But I notice they still have the same board. (laughs) It's that old. But um, the same soundboard. Yeah, the same mixing board, um, the on air mixing board. But, you know, just from seeing photos. Because yeah, I haven't been up to the station in a while. You know, I know the building itself, it's, um, you know, probably well beyond its useful life because of, you know, just deferred maintenance all the time, you know, just because we you never could afford to get much, many things fixed. You did what right. you had to do, you know, and, and volunteers did a lot of it. And I get that, you know, they want to liquidate the property. I get that. It's just, it's just, um, it's just Houston. I mean, it's like we tear down everything that's in our history and don't get to don't get to see it anymore but i will sure miss that old building me too and just like everything else in houston i mean anyone that can tell you montrose recently has changed so much and so much has been torn down but i like to remind folks that that is the way of history we build on the foundations of what went before and i'm hoping that the foundations of what went before for kpft will mean continued community support for people to donate and take an active part. Well, and the uh, truth is that that building is not the radio station. KPFT is about the, a spirit of information and truth and ideas and free thought and being able to, you know, 
have everybody, even communities that aren't in the majority, you know, that aren't male voices, that aren't straight voices, that aren't right wing voices, that that have also have a, a place in um, in the minds and hearts of people, and that's the whole deal about KPFT. I mean, it's 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 an idea. It's not the building itself, although I am fond of it. I'm sure as everybody else is. Well, thanks so much for talking with us today. You're listening to Queer Voices. This is Glenn from Queer Voices. You're listening to KPFT. That means you're already participating just by listening. But how about doing more? KPFT is totally listener-funded, which means it's people like you who are making donations who support this community resource. KPFT has no corporate or government strings-attached funding, which means we're free to program responsibly but without outside influence. Will you participate in KPFT financially? This station needs everyone who listens to chip in a few dollars to keep the station going because that's the way it works. Even if you're listening over the internet on another continent, you can still contribute. Please become an active member of the listener community by making a tax-deductible contribution. Please take a minute to visit kpft.org and click on the red Donate Now button. Thank you. This is Brian Levinka, and today we're speaking with members of the National Leather Association of Houston. Welcome, guys. Thank Thank you. you. We have Robert Kahn, the president. We have Lloyd Powell and Christopher Daniel, the current treasurer. So can we talk about the history of the National Leather Association in Houston? Sure. This is Robert. National Leather Association Houston was formed in 1991. A few years prior to that, the International Association was created and we became one of the, one of the initial chapters of the International Association. We have maintained our connection and interaction with the international organization throughout these 31 years. What does the National Leather Association do? We are a social organization that has a desire to also be charitable and and assist the community. We raise awareness of the leather community, the components of the different aspects of the leather community, and how we can increase the knowledge throughout the community and, and outside of the gay community also. And so who do you raise money for? Right now, we actually have two organizations that we do charity activities for. One is Montrose Grace Place, which provides assistance for homeless youth in the community. And the other is Thomas Street Clinic that we've been affiliated with for probably 20 years now, assisting them with both their Thanksgiving lunch and our Red Ribbon Toy Drive. And so tell me how you got involved. And this question can go to everyone. How you got involved with the Leather Association? Lloyd and I are partners. We, we've been married for 37 years now. We were very active with the bear community in Houston initially when we first got together. The bear organization, Houston Area Bears at the time, and National Leather Association Houston both called Venture In our home bar. We would go out to their bar nights. They would come to our bar nights. That's, that's how we got acquainted with the organization. We've developed our love for leather over the years also. We both became members of National Leather Association Houston in 2007. As far as me getting involved in the in LA Houston, I just moved back to Houston in 2014 
So when I got to know Robert and Lloyd were part of LA Houston, I decided to join the organization because prior to me moving moving away from Houston, I was part of the community all whatsoever, but now I'm a part of the community again. Can you talk about membership, what the members do and your need for volunteers? We currently have 19 full members. We also have associates and some lifetime members. Our members basically, you know, support the organization. We're, we're more of a family than anything else. We treat each other with respect and courtesy. All of the things that a, a leather man holds dear. Volunteer-wise, especially with like our fundraisers, we, we can always use extra help in those fundraising events. We're looking for volunteers right now to assist us with our, our annual anniversary happens the second weekend in April every year, which is called Spring Iniquity. In addition to that, we host an event called Houston Spirit of Leather Awards, and we need volunteers for that also. Can you talk about the Spring Iniquity and the dinner? Uh, Spring Iniquity is, like I said, it's our annual event. It's held every April. That's when we celebrate our anniversary. This year, we're celebrating our 31st anniversary. It's a weekend event that includes social activities, educational activities, because that is one of, that's part of our mission statement is to educate the community on who we are and aspects of the leather community. The Spirit of Leather Dinner, I'll let Lloyd talk about that. Houston Spirit of Leather Dinner basically was created because we created awards to recognize people in the community uh, that we felt were maybe not part of the leather community, but they exemplified the aspects of, of service and the honor and the respect that we do our best to live by. Basically, there, there are public nominations and public voting to nominate individuals as well as businesses and organizations that uh, follow our lead on that. And uh, we decided to actually turn that into a formal awards night. And it's been pretty successful over the years. We've been doing it for 10 years, and we just kind of look forward to its continued growth. So we also created, after the passing of one of our wonderful community members, Jimmy Carper, there was a Jimmy Carper Memorial Award created that has become part of Houston Spirit of Leather as well. We try to, to put on a formal leather dinner that is with some really fine service points so that once you've attended this dinner, it's like you really want to come back because not only do we provide good food, but the service points make it a really, really special evening. And so who attends the dinner? Is it from the Houston leather community or is it outside of that? It is open to the entire community. You can find out, you know, the date, the time, the cost to attend on the NLA uh, Houston website. There's always a guest speaker and it's dinner and it's awards. And it's, it's just not much else because we, we try not to make it an all-night event. We want to allow people to come in, have a good time, and then go on to other things that they want to. But we welcome everyone in. And there are people from our community, from you know the drag community and the queer community, the, the pups, uh, bears, all, all different aspects of the community and businesses from the community that are nominated for these awards. So it is definitely open to everyone. 
going back to what Lloyd said about the dinner, where the the organization itself is not initially gay related only. We cater to everyone in the community, just like our dinner. We invite anybody who ever wants to join the organization. It doesn't matter who you are. We'll accept you. You just need to follow some of our guidelines, which is not hard to follow. But we accept anybody that wants to join our organization. You don't necessarily have to have leather in your heart, but you're willing to learn education about leather. We're willing to educate you about it. Can you talk about some of the misconceptions that people have in the leather community? Well, that you have to be a leather person first before you join the organization. You don't have to. This is Robert. Some of the some of the misconceptions that people have about the leather community is not necessarily that we're all gay. That our organization doesn't doesn't look at any of those stereotypes. But misconception wise, a lot of people still. I mean, they they watch the movie Fifty Shades of Grey and think they know everything about the leather community. And, and there's a whole lot more to the leather community than that movie representation. There's kindness and caring and love for your family. And like I said earlier, to me, NLA is my family. They are the people that I consider my closest friends. And I treat them like I treat family members. And they, they, we all do that. That's part of being a, a leather person. Other misconceptions. There, there's this, this negative connotation about the leather community that, that we're trying to get out that that's not who we are. And this is Lloyd. I, I think a lot of people's misconception about the leather community starts in some very dark places, such as satanic worship and just all crazy things that I don't even want to name, but that is not true. Because we, we do our best to uphold the highest standards of love and concern and community service and compassion and being of service to other people. So we're, we're far from the deep darkness that some people see this as. So your event, Spring Inequity, comes, is on April 9th. It's a weekend event. Is that right? It's from the 8th through the 10th of April this year. And does it take place at the Montrose Center? Part of it does, yes. We will have it in, there's different locations that the different activities of the weekend happen. On Saturday afternoon, that's when we're doing our education classes, and those do happen at the Montrose Center. And then Saturday night, the Spirit of Leather dinner will happen also at the Montrose Center. And before we go, we have a couple of minutes left. What else would you like our listeners to know about the National Leather Association of Houston? Our organization is open to anybody that's interested in learning more about the leather community. It's open to everyone. You don't have to be gay, straight, transgendered, or bisexual. We're open to everyone, whether you are new to leather or new to Houston, or you don't even have to live in Houston to actually be a member of our organization. That's what I want to say about the organization. We encourage everyone to, to think about coming out to the weekend. If, if you want to know more, that's a good place to start. The dinner is, is a great evening. You may learn a little bit there also. We do a bar night at the Ripcord every first Saturday of every month, and we it's various themed. So you can more than welcome to, introduce, to come out and meet members of the organization and also get more education about our organization itself. And you mentioned a website. Can you give us the website URL? Sure. It is nlahoustontx.org. And it's, it's actually totally redesigned. And our new design of the website went live the beginning of this month. 
Very good. If you're joining us, we're speaking with members of the National Leather Association of Houston about their upcoming event, Spring Iniquity, and their Spirit of Leather Awards Dinner. Well, thank you guys for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And this is Queer Voices. Oh, it's not that your curly hair is not gorgeous. And it's not that your lips aren't soft to touch. And it's not because you're coy. You've been a perfect joy. It's because I like girls a little less than boys. Don't you cry. Don't you cry. Don't you spend the night all crumpled up inside. If I'd lied and I could lie, then you'd really have a reason to cry. No, it's not what my big old family wanted, and it's not the pastor's wish for me. He'd say. Restraint I did employ Till I hugged my cousin Troy And found out I like girls a little less than boys Yes, I cried Sure, I cried Spent my teenage years crumpled up inside I couldn't die But I survived Here I am glad to sing this song Taking certain roadways I have missed so much that things not gone this way There's a heap of lot of joy Searching for the real McCoy When you like girls a little less than boys We all cry, we all cry Spend a night or two all crumpled up inside We learn to ride We stayed alive And when we've won We'll sure be glad we stayed alive I'm Marcos Najera And I'm David Hunt With News Wrap A summary of some of the news In or affecting LGBTQ communities Around the world For the week ending March 12th, 2022 Guatemala's conservative president, Alejandro Giamate, surprised political observers this week with the announcement that he'll veto a bill to constitutionally ban marriage equality. Giamate asked legislators to reconsider the law, noting that his administration had neither introduced nor supported the bill. It would also prohibit schools from teaching anything other than that heterosexuality is the norm or anything that could deviate a child's identity according to their birth gender. The measure doubles as an anti-choice law that would jail women for up to 25 years for having an abortion. It was ironically passed on International Women's Day. Members of Jim Matei's own political party were part of the 101-8 to majority that approved the law for the protection of life and the family. 51 Congress members of the nation's unicameral Congress did not attend the session. Giamatea's letter to Congress warned that the bill was unconstitutional and would violate two international conventions of which the Central American country is a signatory.
It certainly runs afoul of the November 2017 ruling of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights that same-gender couples in all members of the Organization of American States should have the right to civil marriage. Congress will discuss Giamatei's threatened veto in the coming week, according to Reuters. If two-thirds of Guatemala's 160-member legislative body votes to move the bill forward, it will be sent to the president's desk for his promised veto. Stories of the bravery and resilience of LGBTQ people in Ukraine continue to emerge as Vladimir Putin steps up his brutal invasion. And that's a word that could get you 15 years in a Russian prison. Warsaw Pride Chair Julia Masioka told Pink News via Zoom that they were arranging suitable safe housing for queer people crossing the Polish border. Many don't make it that far. Ukrainian trans people are having particular difficulty fleeing the country because their identification documents don't match their gender identity. People identified as male between the ages of 18 and 60 are required to remain and join the defense effort. Lesbian human rights activist Olina Shevchenko explained the situation for trans people and other minority groups with ID difficulties on Democracy Now! The case almost not possible for those people who are, uh, have this male documents still or for other trans people to cross the border because during the war they need to be on the war by law. So basically they don't have any possibility to leave the country. That's why they are staying in our shelters. And of course, there is an option for Roma people as well, just to try to cross the border without documents. But it's also very problematic, even, even uh, taking into account that we've been said by different bodies, I don't know, in Ukraine, in different countries, that it will be possible for people without documents to cross the border. But it's not. Transgender people who are trapped or choose to remain in Ukraine need hormones and related meds, and those with HIV-AIDS need access to antiretroviral drugs. Warsaw Pride's Masioka said they need food, they need medical supplies, they need their basic needs to be met. It just hurts to know that they could be hurt at any time. On March 7th, they sent their first shipment of medical supplies to Ukraine with the help of Fundacja Interoxia, a Polish foundation that helps intersex people. Whoops! How did gay clown Putin wind up in the middle of war coverage by Bulgaria's major broadcasters? Activist hackers protested Russia's invasion of Ukraine on March 6 by posting the now infamous caricature of the Russian dictator with the caption, Make love, not war. It depicts Vlad the invader wearing lipstick and mascara with the colors of the rainbow pride flag as the backdrop. The image first surfaced on social media as a protest of Russia's 2013 so-called no-promo-homo law that banned the promotion of homosexuality to minors. Putin has succeeded in shutting down virtually every independent media outlet in the country that could be providing honest coverage of the invasion, so the Russian people have been force-fed a false narrative by the state-owned press. Ukrainian hackers have managed to post anti-war messages on the homepage of Russian media outlets, hack legitimate war footage from Ukraine into Russian state TV, and leak swiped Russian government files, according to Pink News. The head of the Russian Orthodox Church threw himself into Putin's disinformation crusade during his Sunday sermon. Patriarch Kirill named encroaching Western values like LGBTQ pride parades as rationale enough for the war. Meanwhile, anxiety is mounting over the fate of lesbian basketball star Brittany Griner. The seven-time WNBA All-Star and two-time U.S. Olympic gold medalist has been in a Russian jail since February 17th. 
Customs officers at a Moscow-area airport detained Griner after allegedly discovering cannabis oil vape cartridges in her luggage. Out Texas Congressman Colin Allred finds the situation extremely concerning. He told ESPN, I do think that it's really unusual that we have not been granted access to her from our embassy and our consular services. The Russian criminal justice system is very different than ours, very opaque. Representative Sheila Jackson-Lee of Griner's Houston Home District told MSNBC that COVID protocols had further complicated the process. Biden administration officials fear that Griner will be used as a bargaining chip as hostilities with Russia escalate. Griner's wife, Sherelle, thanked people who have reached out about the athlete's detention in Russia. She posted a photo of Brittany with the message, I miss your voice. I miss your presence. There are no words to express this pain. I'm hurting. We're hurting. We await the day to love on you as a family. Finally, the assault on queer kids rages on in Republican-controlled U.S. states, especially targeting young transgender kids and their families. One of the most egregious involves agents of the Texas government investigating and charging the supportive parents of transgender people with child abuse. Opponents have succeeded in getting a judge to issue a restraining order to temporarily stop the investigations. Governor Greg Abbott and loyal henchman Attorney General Ken Paxton are suing the Biden administration for threatening to withhold federal funding over the anti-trans witch hunts. We'll have much more about the Texas purge on next week's This Way Out. In Idaho, anyone convicted of providing gender-affirming medical care to transgender youth could face life in prison under a bill advanced in the State House this week. Even supportive parents and counselors could be charged. It's always important to note that such care for children under 18 is limited to reversible puberty blockers and hormone therapy. Gender reassignment surgery is not standard practice for younger patients. There's also jail time in another Idaho bill for librarians, teachers, or other school officials who allow minors to check out materials with LGBTQ supportive content. That book ban passed the House this week and heads to the state Senate. A similar bill passed the Oklahoma State Senate this week and heads to the House there. South Dakota lawmakers sent a ban on what it calls divisive content in state college and university courses to Republican Governor Kristi Noem this week. She's expected to sign it. Critics warned that its vague language could result in bans on discussion of LGBTQ issues, racism, and sexism. A Tennessee House committee cleared a similar bill this week. Dozens of other U.S. states are seeing the proliferation of so-called bathroom bills, as well as transports ban bills. Any discussion involving the existence of LGBTQ people in school classrooms will soon be virtually eliminated in Florida if the infamous Don't Say Gay law is enacted. Stay tuned for a spotlight on the Sunshine State. That's News Wrap, global queer news with attitude for the week ending March 12, 2022. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappelle, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you by you. Thank you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. And you can read the transcript and listen to News Wrap each week by subscribing to our This Way Out radio channel on YouTube. For This Way Out, I'm Marcos Nakata. Stay healthy. And I'm David Hunt. Stay safe. This has been Queer Voices, which is now a home-produced podcast and available from several podcasting sources. 
Check our webpage QueerVoices.org for more information. Queer Voices executive producer is Brian Lavinka. Andrew Edmondson and Deborah Moncrief-Bell are frequent contributors. The News Wrap segment is part of another podcast called This Way Out, which is produced in Los Angeles. Some of the material in this program has been edited to improve clarity and runtime. This program does not endorse any political views or animal species. Views, opinions, and endorsements are those of the participants and the organizations they represent. In case of death, please discontinue use and discard remaining products. For Queer Voices, I'm Glenn Holt.